0: You're listening to the Mormon Artists Podcast, a podcast covering the world of Mormon arts and examining the intersection between faith and creativity. For more Mormon arts news and interviews, please visit MormonArtists.net. Welcome to the Mormon Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Morris. Today we're speaking with T.C. Christensen. Hi, T.C.
1: Hi, I'm here.
0: T.C. Christensen is a filmmaker known for Joseph Smith, the Prophet of the Restoration, Emma Smith, My Story, Gordon B. Hinckley, A Giant Among Men, Seventeen Miracles, and Ephraim's Rescue. His new film, The Cokeville Miracle, will be released in theaters June 5th. Um, So... Today, that's actually the film that we're going to be talking about. Um, I saw The Cookville Miracle at the LDS Film Festival in March, and it had a great reception there. Um, it was a sold-out showing. And um, it's, it's coming up, and so I'd like to talk about it. One of the things that I just realized this morning is that um, that it's the anniversary, uh, today's the anniversary of the events that the film um, depicts.
1: Yes, it was May 16th, 1986, and uh, 29 years, and uh, that 29 years, I think, has has left its mark still on quite a few people who were involved in the incident. It was, uh, it was really a tough thing for those folks in to, that town to have to go through.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those uh, who haven't seen the film, you can check out the trailer. Uh, it's about... Um, the Cokeville Elementary School hostage crisis which occurred on May 16th 1986 in Cokeville Wyoming uh, where the formal town marshal David Young and his wife Doris Young um, took 136 children and 18 adults hostage at the Cokeville Elementary School so that's the that's the um, story depicted in the film and there were a lot of um large and small miracles kind of surrounding that event um that a lot of the children and adults experienced that are also depicted in the film.
1: So Yeah, let me just say that that, mm-hmm. that is what you just described, that hostage situation. That's kind of the movie of the week idea, oh, kids in peril. But what interested me in the in the story was what happened after. In the days and the weeks following the event, several of the children began to talk to their parents and they'd say, Mom, you know... Why I got out safely, there was a lady in white, and she stood by me and told me what I should do. And there were several of those kind of miraculous incidents, so that was mainly what I wanted to explore with this film.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, kind of how you became acquainted with uh, the events depicted in the film, and what made you decide that you wanted to put that story to film?
1: Well, we had a premiere for another film of mine, which was about um, seven or eight years ago. And at that premiere, my cousin, Stan and Norma Brunswick, they came up to me and said, boy, we got a story for you. Well, I thought, my cousin's going to tell me a story? Cousins don't know movies. (laughs) But I listened to it. He gave me about a paragraph of the idea, and I thought, that sounded good, and so I took a meeting with a, a friend of theirs, and he gave me books and videos and all kinds of things, and I went through it and thought, this is really a, a good story, the type of story that I would like to tell. But at the time, I had a few other projects, 17 Miracles Ephraim's Rescue, being some of them, that were lined up, and so I was focusing on them, and when once I finished Ephraim's rescue, then I started looking. Now, okay, what do I want to do next? Mm-hmm. And that just jumped out at me. And so it's been two years that I've been working on it, researching it, and getting it ready. And then we shot it last summer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me about about um, doing that research and prep, preparing for the film, because I I know that um, it took a lot of preparation. There was a lot of background. Um, interviewing and, and such I'm sure that went into that. And one of the survivors of the hostage situation in an in an interview with uh Deseret News said that um that you were unusually sensitive to the survivors' needs and desire for the story to be told right. Um
1: that's nice. That's a good thing to
0: say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I know that there was some that it is a sensitive story. Um and it's a it's a story that's very close to the hearts and minds of of that community. So, what are some what was that like to research it and and, and approach that?
1: Well, the the other the pioneer films, you know, those folks. When I make a film about Levi Savage, you know, he's been dead for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now here I'm stepping into a different boundary where. These people are basically almost all still with us. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wanted to be sensitive to what they thought the film should be about and that they would like it. There was another project done about 20 years ago, and they did not like and support it. And I can see why I saw it, and I did not want to make that type of film. So my partner Ron Tanner and I, we went up to Cokeville and held couple of town meetings, interviewed everyone we could that would talk to us about the incident and their feelings about it, and to just tried to, to let the community know that we want to know what they think and that we support them and want to make a film that they will be proud of. They were terrific. That's a great town. There's a lot of wonderful people in that town, and they have been terrific to us. We've got to know many of the survivors from Room mm-hmm. 4. Room 4 was the room that the bomb went off in. And they have helped us in many ways. We try to get them to come uh, to uh, premieres and so forth. In fact, the, w- I had told them, we will mm-hmm. not show the film until we've shown it to you. Oh, wow. And we had an early screening. You mentioned that you came to the LDS Film Festival, but it was that morning. Mm-hmm. And we had about 120 uh, Cokeville people come and uh, watch the film, and then from from then then we felt okay. Now we're okay to go out, and you should, you can understand they didn't want to be getting calls from somebody you know down in uh, uh, Wasernal, Utah, saying, "Hey, uh, I saw you, and they, your film's and you know there's this character, and it's you, and that." and they haven't even seen it. I understand that wouldn't be fair, so we went to some effort to make sure they saw it first.
0: Mm-hmm. So what were some of their concerns? I mean, what what did they not appreciate about maybe some of the earlier depictions of the story, and what what were some of the the concerns and, and things that you had to be sensitive to?
1: Well, there were just things like, um, I don't think that the the uh, town of Cokeville and the state of Wyoming were kind of depicted very fairly in another project. The, uh, they kind of looked like hicks,
0: you know, uh-huh.
1: and just a bunch of dingle dorks that don't really know what's going on in life. And then, of course, they just totally concentrated on the peril that you've got kids with a mean guy and a bomb, where, to me, uh, that's only the setup for the story. Mm-hmm. Where they made that, the entire story, when that, when that ends, you got another two minutes and the film's over with. So they just had, you know, those kinds of concerns and we addressed them and hope that we've, you can never, of course, please 100% of the people, but we've tried. Mm-hmm.
0: So, did, I mean, did they feel that, that focusing on the children in peril was um, a little bit exploitative and only told part of the story?
1: Yes, exactly. That really, if you're going to tell this story, the the point of it is God's hand and what happened to keep all of those kids, even though burned, none of them died. None of the adults died. Mm -hmm. And how miraculous in many ways. The film shows, as you you saw, you you get into the third act, and Ron Hartley, who's the investigative sheriff, as he's going through, through and trying to figure out what really happened i mean it's just one thing after another for 25 minutes Mm -hmm. of amazing things that prevented those kids from being really seriously harmed
0: yeah well and i that was really it was really interesting when i was watching it because the um the story arc that was chosen um is exactly what you're describing. And at first I was surprised by it because going into it, being somewhat familiar with the story, at least kind of in a general sense, um, I mean, I was expecting the climax of the story to be when the bomb goes off because um, that's that's a pretty, I mean, that's literally an explosive yeah. moment. That's this very high point, you know, in the action. Um, and that happened much earlier Than I was anticipating and I realized, oh, the story arc isn't hostage crisis, you know, um, building, 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 and then, and then, um, and then resolving. Um, The story arc is hostage crisis situation, building, building, resolving. And then that arc is framed in a larger Um, story arc, which is this family's spiritual journey, and in particular, um, the father who's having somewhat of a a crisis of faith. Um, You
1: got it. Yeah, that's exactly the deal. And once I kind of laid that out, that that's how I was going to handle the story, then these, the the cult people, they could see that, oh, okay, this is, you know, something more in line with our thinking and and not as exploitive.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Because for them, so the the feeling I got from the, from the story and what you're describing as, um, them wanting it to be told right or how they experienced it, for them it, it sounds like the, um, the main events or the events that were important to them were not so much the, um... You know, Doris and David Young coming in and taking children hostage, but to them, the events that have stayed with them that are significant and are the main story even are the the miracles that happened around it. And the experiences yeah, yeah. they had with children, you know, seeing their ancestors or um, women in white protecting them, and that's kind of what stayed with them later.
1: Exactly right That's, that was what I wanted to tell about also
0: mm-hmm. yeah um so so they the reception was pretty pretty positive then um, when you showed it to the the Cokeville residents
1: uh, that what that experience was it was kind of tense you uh-huh. know? they were were gonna drag them back through these you know, terrible mm-hmm. memories. Right. And they're going to have to sit and watch it and, and have things maybe come to mind that they haven't really dwelled on and thought about for many years. Um, when it was over, I felt like there was a sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. That they felt, oh, okay, this is making fun of us and it's done with respect and hits the right points. And then the most amazing thing that I noticed was how many of the survivors and the people from Copeville at the end of our screening okay. did not want to leave. Hmm. Some of them, many of them hung around for two hours after talking about it and the incident, the mm-hmm. film and talking to each other. Some they hadn't seen for a long period of time. It's really a great kind of a feeling of a family reunion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think just a big, ah, everything's okay. Now we can, Feel good about
0: this mm-hmm. yeah kind of a catharsis or closure of some kind yeah that's really interesting um so you talked to a lot of the survivors directly um oh sure i mean did you have some skepticism when you first heard about the the story
1: uh do you mean skepticism as to whether it was uh told true story yeah no, and here's why, and here's what I think is a really good point that I like to make about the Copeland Miracle and mm-hmm. this experience up there. There have been other miraculous incidents that have happened in our culture and mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the Americas in the last many years that it was all about one person, and then you find out later it was a hoax or that they were untrue in, in what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And a great thing of this film, is that it's not one person, it's several people. Even though they're kids, there's several of them, they have different experiences, but they all cooperate uh, with each other. And so it's like in the mouth of two or three witnesses, you know, you have a much more solid testimony of what happened.
0: Mm -hmm. There are stories that were told separately, but we're, were corroborating the same kind of event occurring
1: yeah and so even if say say somebody at some point were to come forward and say you know what i i made that up well you got a whole bunch of other ones that would have to do the same thing because because mm-hmm. uh, it was not one person
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting um so i want to talk about actually um shooting the film um I was really interested in um, the casting. I, I thought the acting was quite good, uh, particularly uh, the villains, um, David uh, and Doris Young. They gave some excellent performances. I um, I thought Doris Young was a really fascinating character. Um, she, you know, was it, it was really interesting because she was obviously very devoted to her husband. I mean, this is how it's depicted, very devoted to her husband. Thought he was really brilliant, but at times you could kind of see in her face, what if he is crazy (laughs) or, hmm, you know, there's, she's a little bit, she's a, she was, she was played as a very, a very complicated character. I think it's subtle, but it's there. And then, and then David Young, um, who was played by Nathan Stevens was, was all, he just, he, he did strike this balance between, um, just very menacing and unbalanced, but at the same time, um, you know, had his, um, I don't know if charming would be the right word, but, but he's not just a monster, he's also human, very unbalanced human, but also a human, um, just in the little ways that he would interact with the kids, you'd kind of, that would kind of come across. Um, and that, that that's, yeah, to, I feel like that would be really difficult to portray that. Um, so how did you find those actors?
1: Uh, let me comment first on what you've been talking about, okay. and, and I'll come back to that. Um, it, they, you are right that they are complicated characters, and I I had a psychiatrist helping me, To try to understand what these types of people are going through and what they're thinking. Oh, interesting. Uh, Basically, I mean, they're at this point in their lives, they're both uh, crazy, mentally unstable in some ways. Mm -hmm. And it's very common with Doris, the, the wife, that she's, you know, just under his thumb and trying to keep the peace and trying to, you just kind of make it okay. Lots of kids in that classroom said that they liked her. Mm -hmm. She was kind and listening and kind of fun and played games with him and so forth. I think she was trying to just kind of make up for his meanness and craziness. Mm -hmm. Um, But with David, uh, my idea of David Young is not just that somehow he became mentally ill and was crazy, but... He was steeped in sin. Mm-hmm. He became kind of worse and worse until... I, and Doris is involved with this, too, to where I don't think they knew what was right and what was wrong anymore. Mm. They were just overcome with all of it. And then, of course, then the mental stuff comes in, plays with it. and mm-hmm. They are. And a great thing that I had with the experience I had with this film is, you know, my pioneer films, there's really no... Antagonist. There's no mean guy, really. that yeah. Follows the Willie Handcart or the Morgan. It's the weather. That's the only antagonist you have. But with this film, I got a mean guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was kind of fun to figure out how to how to play him and make him bad and uh, uh, just visually and with audio and with music and all those other things. Because mm-hmm. the more bad he is, then it mm-hmm. makes the goodness and the miracles even larger. Mm-hmm. So for casting, you know, my hero in filmmaking is Frank Capra. Frank
0: oh Capra yeah, was a
1: great director of the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life is his most famous film now. And Frank Capra said 80% of directing is casting. Hmm. And boy, I, I take that to heart. We spend a lot of time, we have a lot of sessions, we bring them in a lot of times trying to figure out who's going to play this and pull it off. Because I tell you, when you cast the wrong person, you spend all your time and energy just struggling, trying to get an acceptable performance. Mm -hmm. But when you get the right person, you just hold on to their skirt, and they just carry you right through the film. (laughs) They'll come up with things and, and take two as... Marvelous. You don't have to do more than that, and there you go. So in looking for these characters, you know, of course I had pictures of them, and I want to have somebody who looks a little bit like him. I can't just say I'm going to try to make them look totally like them, mostly because people don't know who they are representing. They don't know what David Young looked like when right. they see the film. But with Nathan, uh, I had worked with his brother and knew he was very good. His brother came in, and I was considering his brother with a few others. And then his agent uh, called and said, "Well, you need to see his brother. He's great too. You, you shouldn't leave him out. At least look at him." Well, Nathan came in, and to me, he was—you know—he was the guy mm-hmm. almost right off. Mm-hmm. When I saw him, I thought he looked great. And I just thought, oh, I hope he can act. I hope he can do that. <laughs> and uh, he really blew us away in the uh, the read-through in his casting session. And uh, so he was in with yeah. Doris.
0: <laughs> he was good. I was just saying he just kind of masters the quietly menacing... <laughs> Um, and
1: balance. You don't know what he's going to do next.
0: Yeah, erratic kind of um, feel, for sure.
1: And then with Doris, you know, I've worked for many years, I've worked with Kim M- Mellon, and uh, so I I specifically called her in. I said I wanted to see her because I thought she might be interesting in, in the part. Kim doesn't actually have much resemblance to the real Doris Young, but boy, I'd take a good actor above looks any day. Mm-hmm. To me, you know, a great actor can overcome any of that. They'll convince you that they're the character very quickly, and then you don't even think about it anymore.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, they put in some great performances. Um, you had a lot of children in your film, um, and they were all in one room. <laughs> That sounds like fun. It also sounds like a bit of a challenge. What were some of the, um, the challenges of filming just in general?
1: Well, that's a good one that you've, you've pointed out. And let me tell you, I, I considered that. I knew we're going to be in a not very big room for two weeks mm. with these kids, and they're all between kindergarten and sixth grade. That's a recipe for driving me nuts.
0: So some of that restlessness so- may have actually been real. Is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what I did to try to help that situation, you know, we we can't afford with our small budget to have 154 people. That's how many were in the room. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to have that for every day for two weeks. So one thing I did is I cut it back. And we only had in that room, it was more like 60 people. And because of that, we had to kind of fudge and lower the amount of the ransom and a few things. Uh, not because I didn't know what the ransom really was, but because I, we couldn't deal with that, mm-hmm. with many people. And, and then our uh, assistant director and his staff, Bob Condor, they worked hard to keep the kids under control, to get them out of there sometimes, and let them play and have a break and then bring them back in. And truthfully... If, if there was a kid that was kind of not listening and obeying and doing what we needed him to do, after his second chance, I just would say, take him out. And take him out and tell him tell their mom that uh, they can go home now. Cause you, you just can't, can't deal with that. Mm-hmm. One thing that was hard for those kids is they have to be quiet. They have to look like they're playing but they can't be talking and yelling and clanging things around or We can't get clean dialogue with what we're recording. So they have to pantomime it and fake it. Well, they're mm-hmm. not actors. They have been trained in that, but they did a great job in doing that. And really it was a great experience. Those two weeks in that classroom yeah. really was not anything that was a problem at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was impressed by the performances of the children and the, um, the actor who played um, Jason Hartley um, was, he, he was really good. I was impressed with his kind of, he seemed to give a, a, quite an intelligent but, but innocent performance. Um,
1: well, he's all, that kid, uh, Lego Stinger, Kimball Stinger, I call him Lego.
0: <laughs> Lego is
1: only, I think, eight year, was eight years old when we filmed that, maybe seven. You don't really get, looking at the film, what a little kid he is. But mm-hmm. he really, and he and his family, he's a, from a family of actors, and they get it. They have a great mm-hmm. mom that helps them and, and he runs them through their scenes. Mm-hmm. By the time they come to me, I just push them a little bit one mm-hmm. way or the other. Mm-hmm. And he did a great job. You know, and you ask about what uh, challenges there are with making this film. And, you know, one of them I wanted to tell you is it's just like always when it's, it's a low-budget film. In terms of feature films, I mean, this is minuscule to what Hollywood spent. Right. And so what that, the biggest factor that means to me is we have to do the whole movie in about 22 days, mm-hmm. where Hollywood would do it in about 42 days. So you have so much more work to do per day that the pressure of oh we got to get to the next scene we got to get that scene and, that. and and then if something's going wrong or a problem or i i realize this is good i want to explore this scene a little more and do some more coverage and add a few lines it's very hard to to do that you know when you're doing this type of a low budget film
0: mhm um well the I mean the I thought it was a very beautifully shot film the um the cinematography was was really lovely. Now, my understanding is that you have a background in cinematography. Um so is that I mean how does that influence your approach as a director?
1: Well, it, any experience in film is good for becoming a director, because a director has to oversee every department. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, I am also the director of photography, not because I think I'm the only one, not the best or anything like that. It's just, again, it's a budget, budget concerns, thing. right? Yeah, I can do it. And I can direct and shoot. I've done it for many, many years, especially with commercials. That's very common.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so it's secondhand, it's second nature to me. And mm-hmm. I I can do it. And because I am the also the uh, director of photography, I can set up shots very quickly. I know where I want the light to come from and how mm-hmm. and what, how long it'll take. And if it's too complicated of a shot, I can think of a simpler way to do it. So that's just a you know it's just another arse, uh, uh, another uh, it's another arrow in my quiver mm-hmm. that I can draw on that I can hopefully push us through the day quickly. Also being the director of photography. But I, I have mostly been a director of photography in my career. As I'm older now, I've got a lot of stories that I want to tell, though. So I'm, now I'm doing more directing. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, and and But I still love to go back and work with other directors and other people and, and just be responsible for the camera and the lighting.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you, so arguably, well the protagonists of the film that there's so many characters who um who contribute to to the film and to the story but um the the kind of more point of view um protagonist character is Ron Hartley who's a um policeman in the in the town and he's the skeptic he's kind of the doubting thomas of the film and so what what made you um choose that to make him kind of the uh, the main character and, and to kind of look at those events somewhat through his eyes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one reason was because that's basically a true story, so I wasn't having to make up um, something, an arc for a protagonist. And the second thing is, as I looked at the story, um uh, for me, and really the world, what you require in a good story is the protagonist has to change. He mm-hmm. can't be the same person at the end of the film that he was at the first of the film. And quite a few of these people, you know, they, they, they had to change because of the event. But the Ron Hartley character is the character that really underwent some turmoil should have been there. You didn't protect him, even though he's the protector of the town. Uh, He has all these conflicts between his job and and religion and dealing with God, and then at at the end, he's got a whole new life. He's got an open door into another way of thinking. So that was really what got me, was that Ron Hartley uh, went through a great change.
0: And that was, you said it was a true story.
1: Yeah, Ron would be the first to admit. Uh, he, You know, I didn't embellish much. Uh, I wrote the dialogue, but even um, his wife uh, had told me that a lot of that dialogue that I wrote is dialogue that they've had in wow. privacy of their own home before. You know, mm-hmm. Because anybody, I think, who's been around law enforcement people, it's a very common problem, you know, they deal all week with the garbage of the world,
0: yeah.
1: and then they go to church on Sunday and they sit there and people tell them, oh, just pray and do this and everything will mm-hmm. be okay. And it, it's hard for them to rectify those two worlds mm-hmm. that they live in. And and Ron Hartley was no uh, different. He had that problem. And, Took, it took him some time and some of these experiences to feel good about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, I think it, yeah, I think it works really well as far as uh, storytelling goes. Um,
1: well, let me tell you one other thing I, I like to tell about the storytelling. Sure. That style that I decided in writing the script that I was going to do mm-hmm. came from when I was a, student at BYU, one Saturday night, I went to see a Agatha Christie film called Death on the Nile,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that film used a different style of telling the story than conventionally is used, and it stuck in my head, and I've always liked it, and it basically was that the, the real boom incident happens way earlier in the film than normal. Mm-hmm. And then you spend the whole final third act examining it from different point of views. Mm-hmm. I loved that and I I thought of that when this came up and that's what I applied to writing mm-hmm. the script for the Cokeville Miracle. And yeah, I felt like that was a, a solid good way to tell the story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it I think it definitely kept the interest and the other the other part of the storytelling that I um, thought was, um, it was surprising, um, but also quite compelling, um, was that you didn't give everything away right at the beginning. So there were things that I was familiar with as far as having read about it, as far as, um, some of the wires on the bomb being cut so they didn't detonate and things like that. And, and I I was watching it and it doesn't say, I mean, you don't see that, or the the angels or things like that. Um, well, you never see the angels. That's another thing that I liked about it is it does. I think it does still give you space for for interpreting the events. Um, but um, but things like the wires cut those those things that were definitely facts um, that undeniable facts, right? That that weren't weren't just based on testimony, even very convincing testimony. Um, that that those um, details were revealed gradually. So you see the event, um, kind of the hostage crisis situation, and then in the re- and then in the second half of the film, or the the last thirty minutes, um, you go back and you revisit it, and then you see those little details, and it it slowly flushes out. So you get a, a bigger, more clear picture of the story, um, which I thought was really smart because I. It, it kept my interest throughout the well, the ending that film because so it it could have just been like a very long resolution that wasn't very interesting, but it it actually adds interest continually to the events that you've just seen.
1: Well, and beyond what you're mentioning, we do plants where we plant something earlier on in the film, mm-hmm. and then and then later explain it but mm-hmm. for a while that you don't know what it is.
0: Right. Yeah. A little bit, uh, remind me a little bit of sixth sense in that way. Like these, there are these yeah. little hints here and there of what's, what's actually going on and it's not. And then it becomes, as those details become revealed later on, it kind of refers back to it and you say, Oh, that's what was happening. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, well, so what has the reception been like so far? You said it's, it was pretty positive with the, um, the residents. I was at the LDS Film Festival, so I and struggled to get a seat. So I know that I know that it was a um, sold out showing, um, and and the reaction was very positive. Um, so what kind of what have people been saying about it um, to you?
1: Well, of course, you know, <laughs> no film is going to be a hundred percent loved. We've we've had a few people have a few criticisms, but really the response has been overwhelmingly good. Now, we've had probably to this point 10 different screenings, and they've all been more like invitation only private private screenings, but I'm excited for June 5th when it's just thrown out there to the public to see how they react to it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but based on what we've done so far, I I hope it's going to be very positive. Cause it, you know, the story is great. I'm not tooting my own horn here about it, the movie. The story is powerful. It's for our time. It's needed to, for people to see God's hand in, can be in our lives now. Having done those pioneer films, over and over I would have people come up to me uh, and say, you know, God's still around. That 160-year-old stuff is fine, but why don't you ever do something contemporary? And and this is—I mean, it's 29 years, but it's still it's, you know—in our day. And so I feel very good about putting this story out to the public.
0: Yeah. Um, so I have I have read some, I have read some of the reviews of the films. Film, um I know that some of the concern and this was something that um was obviously anticipated um by uh. by you and and other people in the film um one of the concerns is well there were so many miracles in this hostage situation but um why weren't those same miracles you know manifest in other hostage crisis situations and you know is that gonna be painful or difficult um, for people who are in these other situations to, to see. Um, so what, what would you say about that?
1: Well, we actually it, it address it with a little piece in the epilogue of the film
0: mm-hmm. where
1: we say um, other people in other hostage situations, their, their problem hasn't turned out as well as it did in this. And I don't know why. I don't know why that this these people were blessed and the people of Columbine or other incidents weren't. But what I do know is that the people of Cokeville were blessed. And so I think it behooves me as a storyteller not to shy away from that, because we did see God's hand there. We saw miracles. And so why should we be embarrassed about it? We should talk about it. And I know that some people will be hurt and some things will come up, some um, bad memories and so forth from other things that did not turn out as well. But I believe that the good that can come from this is way beyond the bad that will come from it. So we just go ahead and do our best and
0: Mm -hmm. let her rip. So, what would you what would you hope that that someone would get out of that the film of seeing this film?
1: Well, I hope that they come away realizing, you know, gosh, prayer is important. It should be part of our lives. God can be in our lives. We can ask for things and receive answers to prayer. Um, and I hope that they they just learn more on this Cokeville cool Miracle story, uh, the story that uh, I don't think that many people know about. The, the few people that I run into that really know the story, they all they remember is guns, bomb, mean guy. There's way <laughs> more to the story than that. And now th- they have a chance of knowing what really went on you know, mm-hmm. on that day in 1996.
0: There was a an article in the Huffington Post just yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, um, by... Liz Carlston. She's a survivor of Columbine. And someone had um, told her about the Cokeville Miracle. And so she wrote an article about, about, um, about kind of her thoughts um, as a survivor of Columbine who has talked to uh, some of the survivors of the Cokeville Miracle. She's Christian, and so she she has a particular you know viewpoint on those um but she did she did quote i um, can't remember one of the survivors of the coke of a miracle who said um that it's the point of of them wanting to get their story out there is not that they feel like they're special but that prayer is special um of course that beg- i mean that then the question could be well other people pray and and their prayers might be answered in a different way um but she, um, she seemed to feel that um, that the Columbine story is important to tell her story as a survivor, but that the story was also um, could be uh, useful for people to hear. Well, I'm glad about. to
1: hear that. I, I think that's a very healthy way of looking at it. You know, the the point we make in the epilogue is that you know, in Christ's day. Not every leper that lived all off through Israel was healed. He didn't heal every one of them. He didn't heal every blind person that was all over the place, you know. But that doesn't mean that when a miracle happens and he did heal a leper, we shouldn't talk about it because some other leper might feel bad. I Mm -hmm. think we need to to know and talk about what God's hand when we see it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Can I ask you about some of the marketing choices for the film? Sure. Um, What do you see as being your audience for the film?
1: Well, our primary audience is believers, Christian people. This is not a a specifically LDS film. Uh, That town is heavily LDS, but what happened there and who it happened to, it would be very narrow to try to act like this was just something given to Mormons. You know, yes, mm. culture. It wasn't. So it really, we're trying to market it to, first of all, the Christian people, but at the same time, hoping you can always get the, the little fray, you know, the edges of that, where you bring in non-believers. Mm. You know, maybe get somebody thinking about, cash. maybe there is something that I should be doing instead of being so agnostic and living my life, you know, without thought in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was wondering about that film. I was, because it's about a pr- predominantly Mormon community, um, but it never says, it's about a predominantly Mormon community, but it's never stated in the film that these, um, that these people are predominantly Mormon. Um, And there are even points in the film, I think at one point, someone refers to a pastor instead of to a bishop. So pastor would be, you know, some other Christian denomination, bishop would be Mormon. Um, So was that, were those choices made kind of, um, those artistic choices were influenced by kind of the marketing, the audience that you were wanting to go for?
1: Yeah, it really is. You know, if we, if we had made it with just um, an LDS point of view and telling people that this was uh, these were LDS people and this was a bishop and so forth, we would never be able to reach as many people. And so we looked at that and make that, made that decision early on that we were going to try to go broader. And I'll tell you another area I'm trying to go broader with is our Pioneer films have tended to strike a chord mostly with an older generation, I think they, they see their heritage. They want to pass it on to their children, their grandchildren, and so forth. But I think this film, based on some of the screenings we've had with young people, you know, a young adult group, that kind of thing. I think they uh, have just as much of interest in this film as, as an older generation does. I don't know. Maybe it's the, um, uh, Uh, The Children of Peril is a good hook. Uh, Maybe it's just the the, the themes of prayer and God in our lives somehow strike a a deeper chord with them. Mm
0: -hmm. That's interesting. Well, we'll see. Um, Okay, so it's opening June 5th. And where can people see it?
1: Well, uh, it's really all up and down the Wasatch Front from Boise, Idaho Falls, all the way down St. George to Mesa on its open. But we're in about 20 other uh, markets as well on June 5th, which includes Dallas and Atlanta and Spokane and uh, Orange County, California. And then, you know, I have to plead for support because that this opening weekend is so important. Theaters are all by numbers, and if, if we don't get people out... During that first weekend and that week, they'll, they'll just dump it for the, whatever the next Hollywood show is that comes out. That's how it works. So we're hoping to to get some support from people that they don't wait and just think, "Oh, we'll get to that later," because there may not be a later.
0: Right. So, if you want to see it, plan on seeing on it seeing it open opening weekend because you might not yeah, be able to see it the next it. week. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Are you excited?
1: <laughs> yeah, I am. I, I've been on this for two years. I want to get it out and see how it does. And, yeah. you know, we're we're busily promoting and trying to, to go out and let people know be, about it. Because, well, again, with the low-budget film, we don't have the money that Hollywood does that, to promote and spend millions of dollars on TV and, and advertising. Mm-hmm. We kind of mostly, what I feel like, is I have to make a film that's good enough that people... Come home from seeing it and say to their neighbor, "You got to go see that. It's a good film." And yeah, that's the best marketing. Word of mouth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited to see how it does and and to see what the reception is both in the the Mormon community and in then the larger the larger Christian audience. It'll be it'll well, be. Let me
1: let me mention to you that to our distributor itself took it down to Dallas last mm-hmm. week and had a screening for, I'm sorry, I don't know if it was Baptists or Christian group. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they they handed out uh, survey cards and asked them what they thought and if anything offended and so forth. And we did really well. They came, Arthur Van Wagner came back from that, uh, from Excel. He came back from it very pumped because it was such a warm reception. People really liked the movie and felt like it had re- relevance in their lives. So, oh, yeah, hopefully we can make a dent outside of just the Wasatch Front.
0: Oh, great. That's great to hear. Okay, well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Oh, Catherine, thank you for talking to me. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mormon Artist Podcast. For more episodes, please visit mormonartist.net.